Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. The amount of litigation that we see post IPO for tech companies is pretty significant because the marketplace says suddenly this company is funded and you know what? They're in my space, so I'm going to go after them. In today's knowledge based economy, your intellectual property is your competitive advantage and it needs to be protected. You can avoid a lot of those headaches and heartburn if you pay attention to that landscape pre IPO and likely you will find a way to engineer around other IP rights holders in your space. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. As companies are built, capital is invested in a variety of growth initiatives. But given the value of intellectual property and its ability to create a true moat around the business, where does protecting it fall on the investment priority list? Here to tell us more about these complex and important topics is John Mancini, partner at Mayor Brown and a member of the firm's global intellectual property practice. John's practice focuses on litigating copyright, trademark, trade secret, and patent disputes across the country, and he has successfully tried high-profile intellectual property cases as lead counsel, representing both public and private companies in a wide range of industries. His clients include tech giants like Google, YouTube, Spotify, and many others, and his contributions to the field have been recognized with many awards and honors, including his 2020 induction into the Legal 500 Hall of Fame for trade secret litigation. John and I spoke about IP-related vulnerabilities that companies should be aware of, new intellectual property challenges facing businesses in the social media age, and why getting your IP assets figured out should be an early priority for any company. Let's enter the arena with John Mancini. I went to Georgetown, graduated many years ago in 1989, and started at a then what was a big firm in New York City called Shane Gould, named after one of the founders of the Mets, Bill Shea. And I really got my bug for intellectual property litigation there because within my first year, one of our cases that had a trade secret component literally went to trial. And I was lucky enough to be what was then known as a third chair, setting up uh, witness outlines, preparing for depositions, and literally had a seat at the trial table. So I was hooked very early on. And then a lot of our friends, including our friends from high school in the early 90s, when the internet took the world by storm, came to me because they saw that I had that expertise in IP, even at a young age, and they were young bucks sort of making their inroads in the space. And I was able to advise them on those IP issues between the crossroad of the internet 
and old world commerce. And uh, I was lucky enough as a result of that to represent some of the early movers and shakers in that space. And along the way, transform that into much bigger clients like Google, YouTube and others. Yeah. Life is timing. I remember seeing a blurb in like USA Today, something about the internet. And I'm like, nothing will ever come of that, you know? And then all of a sudden you're kind of there right at the beginning of something, which was uh, just a quite a launch pad for your career. Talk about Mayor Brown a little bit, John. How long have you been there? And what are the advantages that clients get, particularly big global clients, when they're using you to represent them in these kinds of cases? So Mayor Brown is probably now one of the top 20 global firms. We've got offices on many continents, 25 cities plus around the world. And one of the big advantages that we offer is the ability to have sort of a global strategic vision for our clients. And recently that came in pretty significantly in one of my cases that involved a rather dramatic cross-border dispute where different results were being obtained across jurisdictions. But our team was able to look at it and say, okay, what's the consistent messaging and what's the consistent vision that we ought to be having? And as a result of that, we were able to turn the tides pretty significantly. So that's one of sort of our hallmarks, our global offering, where we, as our clients grow internationally, as the world gets smaller, we can help them solve problems in many places and have a consistent, unified approach that not too many other firms can bring. Well, we could probably talk about a million different things today and companies of all sizes, but I thought it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about companies that are going public because here at ICR, as you know, John, we work on a lot of IPOs from a communications and advisory standpoint, but you're kind of underneath the hood during this process as well. I wanted to ask you, you know, as, as companies go public, and at least in my experience, management teams are so stretched. There's so many things that they have to do during that process. How do they prioritize maybe an audit or a review of all their intellectual property? You know, does that sometimes get knocked down in the priority list, unfortunately? My great fear is it, it gets deprioritized and it gets down the list. But I think it needs to be amongst the most important items to be prioritized. Because, look, one of the classic things, particularly in the tech sectors, that companies will try to communicate to the public is that they have barriers to entry. Everybody says it. But the only way in the legal parlance that you communicate or memorialize your barriers to entry are by protecting your intellectual property. And that can be done in the most obvious of ways, trademarks, patents, copyrights, but it can also be more trade secrets, restrictive covenants for your key employees. And having that bucket of IP assets sufficiently protected before you go public is your way to tell the market that, hey, when we say we've got barriers to entry, we mean it. And here's our IP audit to prove that for you. Yeah, it, it's really fascinating, too, because, you know, as a former sell-side analyst, you know, you focus on a balance sheet and a P&L, and it's very easy to look at, hey, we just raised $500 million or a billion dollars, and that's a clear asset. But IP is not always reflected accurately on a balance sheet, meaning that it's so important and so central to some companies. I think it gets underestimated when companies are valued in the stock market. Oh, I would totally agree with that. I'd give you one example. Those of us have been around long enough remember the dot-com bubble around 2000. And one of the things that literally saved Amazon was that a bond analyst, I think it was at Lehman, did a valuation of Amazon's IP. Everybody was looking at Amazon's 
losses, they're depleting cash reserves, et cetera. But somebody at Lehman said, wait, you got to look at their IP and what their IP is valued and gave them a multi-billion dollar valuation for their intellectual property. That really set the stage for turning the corner on what, what, you know, a depressing moment for a lot of tech companies. There's no doubt. IP is one of the most important assets. It's not properly valued. Companies ought to do a much better job of looking at it and figuring out what it's worth. Yeah, and I think a lot of analysts on Wall Street, if they sat down with you or they sat down with the company or the internal legal counsel at companies, that should be like a paragraph in their report, right? I mean, it just seems like, you know, if a market cap is X, you really you really can, I would imagine, put a value on that. Oh, exactly right. You know, interestingly enough, I also do a significant amount of litigation in addition to consulting and counseling for clients. In our litigations, we will hire IP valuation experts. And what they will tell the courts or juries is, I've looked at the IP, here's the value of it. Whether we're a plaintiff or defendant, they'll say, here's the impact on that value based on this infringement claim. So it absolutely can be done and there's tons of experts that do it. That's super fascinating. You talked about the barriers to entry before and, and again, through my lens, I always see companies come out and they talk about their differentiation, their growth opportunities, the barriers to entry, the moat around the business. How do companies kind of enforce those barriers to entry as they grow? So the most classic way, of course, is litigation. But we get that a lot of emerging companies don't have the resources to do it. But there are less expensive ways, nonetheless, just as important ways to do that. And the most classic way is a cease and desist letter. And you'd be surprised when a company receives a cease and desist letter from a reputable lawyer at a top firm that you will often get as much of a reaction as you if you file the complaint for a lot less expensive and typically you'll find a solution yeah it's funny i'm smiling because if i got a you know a scary letter from someone like you for, at a big law firm you know i'd google you right away and i'd be like okay i'm not gonna do that anymore <laughs> <laughs> you know um but i mean listen right it's it's simple and inexpensive and if you have your protections in order you've kind of uh come out ahead of the game, if you will, right? Like you're, you spent a little bit of money up front to do that versus, you know, some back end thing where you're not protected and now you're a public company and you're fighting something in, in the public domain that might have to be disclosed and situations like that, right? That's exactly right. So I've done so many of these, both on the offensive and defensive side and, and on an anonymous basis on the defensive side, just in the last year or so, we were representing a data company that was pre-IPO and they got a pretty strongly worded cease and desist from somebody who has kind of my background in another big firm. And, you know, it led to several months of a negotiation, an intensive examination as to whether or not there was any merit to the claim. We took it very seriously. We ultimately found there was no merit, but that cease and desist letter and the ensuing process was a major issue that the board was paying attention to pre-IPO. So it definitely gets everybody's attention. Yeah, for sure. What can some of the IPO companies do to, you know, avoid some of the traps during the process? Most companies will do a decent job, although many do not, of protecting their IP rights offensively. The next level of this, which is critically important, especially for companies that are in the tech space where there's a crowded field of IP rights holders, is to do, for lack of a better term, what we would call a freedom to operate search, which is to look at the competitors in your space Take a look at the patents and or trademarks or copyrights they have. See if they present any risks to you. Because frankly, that could do two things. One is it could identify that risk and you can figure out your avoidance practice about how you get around that risk. Two is it might help you to sort of engineer around that so you don't have a claim filed against you. Because it is no surprise, I'm sure, to you, Tom, and to your listeners that 
the amount of litigation that we see post-IPO for tech companies is pretty significant because the marketplace says, suddenly this company is funded. And you know what? They're in my space, so I'm going to go after them. You can avoid a lot of those headaches and heartburn if you pay attention to that that landscape pre-IPO, and likely you will find a way to engineer around other IP rights holders in your space. How about contracts? You know, I, I think when companies are private and growing, you know, there's so many things to do. They're not maybe super tight on those kinds of things. What can a company that's kind of entering the public domain do to ensure appropriate contractual protections? Yeah, really important. So first and foremost is just to make sure that your contracts with your key employees have all the right restrictive covenants. Is, you know, especially in the tech space, yes, you are your software, your offering, but you are also your people. Those assets leave your elevators every day. You've got to make sure that they don't walk out the door with your trade secrets and walk across the street to develop the next competitor to you. But the other thing you ought to be doing is looking at your critical, and obviously you can't do it all, but looking at your critical third-party supplier contracts. What exposures do those create for you? You'd be surprised how often we see that software consulting or contracting agreements don't transfer the IP to the company. They're held with the software development firm, which is a major, major risk for companies. And you'd also be surprised how many times we see third-party data providers providing data and then disclaiming the IP rights over that data so that the company that critically relies on that data for purposes of its database or its offering is suddenly facing suits from third parties. Doing that type of assessment, both offensively and defensively, allows you to figure out those risks and figure out solutions for them. Yeah, it's funny, every company now is becoming a technology company and every earnings transcript I read, every company that's announcing their results in the public domain, big push into data analytics. I mean, I have to think that plays into exactly what you're saying. Like you have, now you have all this data and you have a lot of people that have access to it. It's all about data right now. It's all about data. And the, the new level of risk for these companies is many jurisdictions, both at the state, federal level, and international level, are passing new data privacy regulations that companies urgently need to be aware of. Because if you're not managing that data in compliance with local, state, or federal laws, you expose yourself to these massive privacy class actions, which are now de rigueur for the plaintiff's bar. So there's a whole nother level of making sure that you are taking the steps to not only protect the privacy and security of the data, but to make sure that you own the IP rights over that data. So that this is something that is probably in the last years, couple years, become urgent for companies at all levels because of the emerging legal landscape, which is creating all these new regulations. How about new hires? You know, it seems to me like Certainly out in Northern California, people are always kind of looking to hit the home run in a way and they kind of move from firm to firm, sometimes in short bursts. What can uh, companies do to protect themselves with new hires and kind of the access that those hires have to confidential information and intellectual property? So importantly, it is critical that you manage and are aware of the risks with new hires. Take a look at the contracts that they have with the departing employees. Have what are seemingly obvious conversations with those folks to remind them to not download any files to, you know, drives or, or USB before they leave, because those are just going to be red flags. Every good company now is going to manage that in the excess process for their key employees. And they're going to see that that activity has gone on. And there have been some big name litigations 
involving departing employees have been caught doing exactly that. And of course, the company hiring those employees is going to be named in the action. So you really have to be smart about knowing the risks you're taking and helping your employees, sometimes even very senior employees, there's been some enormous cases involving very senior executives doing those types of silly things, telling them and reminding them about the obvious, about the things they should not be doing. Ultimately, these employees, you want them for their market leadership and their the intelligence that they've gleaned. You don't really want them to be taking files. So having what sounds like an obvious conversation is critically important these days. What is interoperability? Because that's above my pay grade, but what are the risks associated with that, you know, for tech companies? Yeah, it's a great question. It's, it is an emerging issue for major tech companies. So most companies need to operate on an API basis or otherwise with app developers. That's how commerce is done these days. That is another area where you need to be aware of what IP rights are out there to make sure that, yes, there's a lot of that interoperability is done with open source code. Some is not. So you need to be aware of the fault lines so that your systems can operate with other systems, typically in an app world, but also that you're not taking without a license software or code that is not open source. So being aware of those traps is critical because today's economy, it functions basically through the interoperability of computer systems that need to be able to speak to each other. And in order to do that, certain of it is done through open source code, other is not. And understanding that distinction and difference is critical. Safeguarding IP assets is not the only way attorneys like John help protect companies. These days, social media and influencer deals have opened the door to new vulnerabilities. It may seem simple, hire Charlie D'Amelio or the Kardashians to post about your product and watch your sales grow. But I asked John what risks are involved in those kinds of relationships. Yeah, there are many levels of risk. One is on a regulatory front. There's a whole series of regulations that you need to be aware of about what you are able to do with social meters and how you have to disclaim whether they are paid or they are sponsored. And you can get yourself under the regulatory microscope and subject to class action litigation. But the other aspect, which seems rather intuitive, is that social media influencers will almost always embed either music or movies in the background of their podcasts for you. And that, of course, implicates third-party concerns. And the company that is using that social media influencer could be liable for what's known as contributory copyright infringement. And there are a series of very significant claims involving exactly those issues. It is surprising to see how many big companies have fallen into that. But we get it. Using social media influencers is critical to the growth of many brands. You just have to be smart that you understand the risks there and that you work with them to make sure that to the extent that they're using any third-party content that is properly licensed. Maybe without naming names, is there any cases that you can reference in that area you know, where it would just seem harmless to some companies as they're growing to kind of use third-party music or video. Has there been a lot of uh, case law around that and and different outcomes that, you know, really was kind of eye-opening to you? Yes. I I will say one of the things I'm most proud of in my career is several years ago when Google bought YouTube, they were immediately sued by all the content companies claiming that YouTube was essentially the video version of Napster and Grokster. And fortunately, we were able to win that case on a case involving no liability whatsoever by basically resetting the legal landscape. There's a provision of the Copyright Act known as the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which allows a company like YouTube 
that is hosting user-generated content to relieve itself of liability, provided it has a reasonable notice and takedown regime, which YouTube clearly had. That was the test case for that part of the statute. And that case basically enabled a lot of the Internet traffic that we have today. Companies are able to rely on the, the reliability of that decision to say, hey, yes, our users can post videos and we won't be liable, provided we have certain measures. That was a, a real turning point for the Internet. Switching gears, John, you know, a lot of software and other tech companies have the ability to scale really quick. They have massive funding and they're going to start, you know, growing from maybe here in the U.S. to just all over the world. And I have to imagine IP law differs from country to country. I know Mayor Brown is set up to kind of handle that, but it just seems so daunting and expensive to to create protections, you know, all over the world. Is that the case? How do you create a pathway, so to speak, for companies to kind of grow into a global firm with those kind of protections without it being just unbelievably onerous and time consuming and, and expensive? Yeah, that's one of the biggest challenges we have. Because, of course, we completely get that our clients' assets aren't limitless. As you know, IP rights are territorial. Even though the world is shrinking and the economy is becoming truly global, IP rights are still territorial. What we generally advise clients is pick what are the 20 or 30 top markets where you envision yourself in the next few years and make sure you get ahead of it. Because, unfortunately, in today's world, particularly in regions like China, You've got these squatters who are watching these new companies grow, and they will get ahead of you. And in many jurisdictions, it's what's known as a first-to-file regime. Whoever files the IP rights first owns them. And then you're going to find yourself blocked out of that regime because you didn't get there early enough, even though it was on your radar to grow there in two or three years. It is one of the biggest challenges a client's face. Nobody can you know, pick 100 countries in the world and, and protect all their IP rights there. But you have to be smart about what are your most important markets on the horizon and make sure you are protected there because you could come into that market and find that some squatter who's been watching your growth has gotten ahead of you. And major companies and small companies have both faced this challenge. And it is a difficult one to overcome when you enter that economy. Suddenly somebody has protected the IP rights before you did. Yeah, it seems like there are very well-organized groups who are just naturally going to be at odds with growing companies because there's just so much money at stake, right? I mean, at the end of the day, if you know you have a class action and maybe you settle it, and I'm not a lawyer, but you'd have to think that it's worth a group's time to kind of just go for it, given the risk-reward profile of, of litigation like that. Yeah, there's no doubt. That's one of our biggest challenges as a law firm is protecting against that risk because there's also a temporal element to this. If you've got these massive litigations and you're about to go public or you have a time frame to go public in 12 months, you would like to get that issue resolved, maybe settled. Oftentimes the legal system doesn't work that quickly. So what we do try to do sometimes is find you know a solution by means of a settlement that works for everybody. Sometimes we might agree to a class action settlement regime provided it provides our clients with some type of coverage for a certain area of exposure that's far broader than a few individual plaintiffs. But yes, that is one of the biggest challenges. And it's unfortunately a challenge because IPO processes work at light speed compared to our judicial system. What other cases could you share? Maybe not with using names if you can't do that, but other highlights in your career that really underscore the importance of of companies as they grow, really being out in front of these issues and, and what can happen if they don't? 
So, you know, I, I've done so many cases, but on a no-names basis, a few that come to mind involving, we put together some very creative solutions for clients to basically get ahead of the problem of the difficulty finding the relevant licenses, for example, in the music space, which it was an industry that didn't have proper data. So it was almost impossible to get the appropriate licenses such that our clients were being sued time and time again. And we were able to resolve some cases by means of a novel class action settlement process where our clients obtained licenses in return. And as a result of solutions like that, the entire industry benefited. I think both sides benefited. And ultimately, Congress got around to fixing the law, but uh, it required the civil practice lawyers like our firm to find solutions before then because the system was just broken. On a personal level, John, did you have a mentor along the way that kind of helped you through your career? There's several. There's one who was a very dear mentor of mine. His name was Arthur Christie. He was named partner of a boutique firm after I left Shingold called Christine Viner. It's since merged into a big, big firm, but that's where I made partner. And on the eve of a major court hearing, where as a young associate, I was frenetic about making sure everything was prepared, worried about what our, our client was going to say. And he taught me this moniker, which sticks with me today, and I always pass on to my associates, which is the importance of grace under pressure. And it's something I always try to maintain because it's a pressure-filled industry, particularly when you've got these bet-the-company litigations. But one thing we can do is, as we are solving these critical problems for our clients, is to exhibit some grace under pressure. And I, I've always tried to do that. The other thing that just pops into my mind is for your client, it's incredibly emotional. And isn't it your job to take the emotions out of it, which if it's a multi-year thing, you have to get wrapped up into it personally. Like, how do you take the emotion out of out of it? Yeah, that's always a challenge and still is to this very day, because these cases are very personal to everybody. You know, the GC is going to be judged on his or her performance on these bet the company cases. All that I can say is what we always do is not only do we try to find very creative solutions, but we have to be counselors for our clients. And counseling them does mean walking them through the likely outcomes, giving a, a relative weighting to what's likely going to happen, what's likely not going to happen. And then once you show them that pathway, hopefully they get less stressed about it because you, you have a plan for each of those pathways and you've assessed what are the odds of X, Y, or Z happening? And, and that gives a little bit more comfort. But serving as a counselor to our clients is something that we lawyers always do. Sometimes folks forget that. They just try to say this is the obvious solution. But being a good counselor is one of the critical things that we think sort of distinguishes our lawyers in the marketplace. My last question, John, what's your ideal client? My ideal client is a tech company that is willing to be both creative about solving a new problem, yet having the courage to see one of these cases through to make new law. Because companies like Google that did it on the YouTube case and others not only created a pathway for themselves, but an entire industry because they had the courage to say, this is what the law must stand for, and I'm going to be ready to fight for those rights. And in doing so, they created an entire pathway for the next generation of tech companies to blaze new paths and offer new products and exciting solutions for the next generation of kids like mine. Whether it's the arrival of a simple cease and desist letter or a full-blown lawsuit, IP-related legal issues can be a major roadblock in a company's success, not to mention expensive and emotionally draining. 
You can save yourself a lot of stress by having an experienced guide like John, someone who knows the complex ins and outs of IP law and can steer you away from potential pitfalls. At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. Thanks again to John, a partner in Mayor Brown and a longtime friend for taking time to join me today for this super insightful conversation. This is Tom Ryan. We'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.